Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am super excited today to welcome Professor Heather Davis to the show. Heather Davis is Assistant Professor of Culture and Media at the New School and the editor of Desire Change, Contemporary Feminist Art in Canada, and co-editor of Art in the Anthropocene, Encounters Among Aesthetics, Politics, Environments, and Epistemologies. Today, we are discussing her new book, Plastic Matter, which was published in 2022 with Duke University Press. Professor Davis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you talk about your personal relationship to plastic? Sure. Um, Yeah, so I started thinking about plastic um, in many different ways. And one of those is, of course, because of its ubiquity. It's um, something that I think we all have some kind of personal relationship to. Uh, it's one of the most intimate manifestations of our relationships to oil. So we see it in everything from our clothing to uh, sex toys to baby baby bottles to computer networks. Really everything that we use to mediate our existence at this point is Um, in part mediated through plastics or virtually everything. Um, And so that's one of the ways in which I've come to think about plastics is through that kind of, um, that kind of bodily intimacy with our relationships to oil as a, as a larger product. Um, But the other way for me um, that is a little bit more personal is my maternal grandfather was a chemical engineer at DuPont and later a manager uh, for DuPont Canada. And uh, growing up, um, you know, there was all kinds of discussions of uh, plastics, especially plastic textiles, which is what he was primarily involved with. Um, But also uh, there was the story that he helped to develop the plastic milk bag. And um, this will be really familiar for people who uh, live in Canada or Europe or India or parts of South America, Um, less familiar for um, an American audience. Um, But, uh, but it's, uh, it's literally just kind of a bladder of milk. Um, And the reason why they developed it was because they realized that this was the cheapest way to package a liquid. Um, And And this really speaks to a lot of the different ways in which plastics come to appear in our lives. Many of them are, it's not because of a kind of necessity. Um, It's not driven by consumer demand. Um, It's really driven by the ways in which industry is trying to create uh, cheaper and cheaper products um, in order to maximize profits, obviously. And one of the things, the other thing about um, my grandfather and um, helping to invent this sort of strange um, plastic object um, is um, is that he would often bring it home to my grandmother to test. So my grandmother would would um, would be presented with all different types of sort of prototypes of of these uh, plastic milk bags. And I don't know about in other parts of the world, but in the end, in Canada, they're they're packaged in one point three liter. Um, 
bags and then there's a set of of three of them that are that you buy together and and um and these this kind of dimensionality or like how big it's going to be or like what it what it is what it what it um kind of appears as as a consumer product my grandmother helped to sort of decide in terms of um as a kind of quintessential um suburban housewife of the 1960s um really trying to you know, she was the kind of ultimate focus group in terms of in terms of what um, what these kinds of domestic plastic products um, could be used for. On the other hand, I think it also speaks to the ways in which um, you know, in the kind of official versions of the story that my grandfather would tell about this, what, you know, at, at Dupont gatherings, etc. He would always exclude my grandmother's participation in this, despite the fact that she was um, so instrumental in relationship to um, de- basically designing the the milk bag, figuring out what was actually going to work and what people were actually going to use and what people were actually going to buy and what was kind of a usable product. Um, and I think that this also speaks to the ways in which um, women's labor at the time was often um, undervalued and erased in the course of in the course of history. Um, so I think it really ties in a lot of the kinds of stories around plastic in terms of uh, why plastics exist in the world, um, how they come to proliferate. Um, but also for me, I was really interested in this kind of question of inheritance. So what do we do with um, with this world that we've inherited? Uh, because, you know, we can't at this point say that we are going to live our lives without plastic. That's completely and utterly unrealistic, um, both for the purposes of sort of thinking about how much plastic informs contemporary existence, but also because of the longevity of the material um, and the pervasiveness of the material. So, um, so I, so, so I think that one of the things that I was really interested in is both like, how does a material like this come to exist in the world to begin with? What are the kinds of philosophical assumptions about matter and materiality that cause plastic to exist? And then the second part of that being, what do we do now that it is so pervasive? Um, and Jacques Derrida talks about the ways in which, um, inheritance is always before us it's not in the past we think about we often think about inheritance as something that that comes from the past but but he reformulates that to think about that as as something that is actually before us in the sense that we have to our job is to figure out what to carry from an inheritance and what to move move forward with um and also that inheritance really structures who we are. So one of the other things that's that's been really informative to me about thinking with uh, the petrocultures literature, for example, um, is really about the ways in which we are already constituted by this material. So it is fundamental to our subjectivities. Um, so how do we think about that? And how do we think about our relationships to something that is fundamental to who we are um, and in fact constitutes our identities, but that is something that we might want to shift our relations to. I think this transitions beautifully into my second question, which is, of course, what is plastic matter? Yeah, so as I was saying, um, one of the things I was really interested in is, is how, what are the kinds of philosophical assumptions that, that, that are necessary to be there as a kind of precondition to the emergence of plastic as a material that that would then take off. Um, And so plastic matter is a way to describe these relations, a way to describe the, the fact of 
our orientation to um, matter itself as plastic, not just um, plastic as a material or really as a set of materials. I should say plastic is actually thousands of different materials. Um, we just group it together under this kind of common name. Um, but um, but that plastic matter describes this relationship, this kind of recursive relationship between the desire for matter to be plastic and and what I mean by that is all matter, right? And we can see this in the kind of um, pickup of material engineering and molecular engineering that happens after plastic. So one of the other things that's really fascinating about plastic as a material is it, it is, does mark the beginning of molecular engineering. So it's one of the first types of products um, that both, uh, that both um, allows for scientists to be able to uh, really study and um, and explore how molecules uh, form themselves into chains, right? How how we think through uh, the kind of polymer structure, um, and and all of that is being developed through industry um, in really it, as they're trying to develop new different types of consumer products. And then in addition to that. Um, there's a way in which that kind of investigation in the kind of um, polymer structure of of um, of matter itself, um, or the molecular structure of matter itself, that that um, that that kind of orientation to the world allows for then a much larger exploration of how we think about matter. So the ways in which we come to assume that matter can be pliable, that can be bent, that it can and should kind of conform to human desires. Um, and we can see this throughout the rest of the history of the 20th and 21st centuries, um, which of course lead to all kinds of amazing things that many of us probably wouldn't want to do without. Um, but it does rest upon this fundamental presupposition that there is a plasticity to the world um, that is ingrained into um, into matter and that it is our right and our um, well we have the ability and we also have a kind of fundamental right to be able to manipulate um, those materials and and so I was interested in how that kind of philosophical assumption about plasticity um, that you can see kind of kind of ebbing and flowing throughout the kind of history of, of Western Western thought going all the way back to um, Plato, is like is really kind of emerging in relationship to plastic itself as a material, um, and then um, and then seeing the ways in which plastic then changes our relationships to to matter more broadly. So, what are the things that that plastic then shows us about the world that is maybe different from our from those kind of fundamental um, presuppositions that go into its making? So plastic matter is the concept that that describes this this recursive relationship. In the introduction, you write that plastic pollution can be thought of as a form of colonialism. Why is that? So this is something that um, uh, one of the thoughts that that I'm indebted to um, Max Lebrun, who um, wrote this incredibly uh, beautiful and, and really um, groundbreaking book um, called Pollution is Colonialism, and who has been working um, with their lab, the Clear Lab, um, in um, Newfoundland uh, for many years now. And one of the things that they um, say very clearly, which I think is uh, really helpful, because um, 
I think that a lot of us have a kind of intuitive sense that there is um, there is something along these lines, right? I think that the environmental justice movement has shown us for at least um, since the 1950s that, um, that there is this correlation between pollution and the extensions of white supremacist culture. So um, really extending into and, and subtending and exacerbating the kind of pre-existing conditions of, of anti-Blackness and, and um, settler colonialism. But Libreron takes this and really shows it very clearly by way of saying that that pollution itself um, has within it the kind of logics of pollution have within it a fun, this this um, understanding that land is there to be um, used, right? <laughs> and and in this in this case, used f- to be able to pollute, right? That that something like a landfill is a perfectly acceptable. Um, use of of material of of the land itself um but and what they want to um what they want to challenge or really show is the way that the kind of availability of land especially in the lands that i'm familiar with which is um northern north america um that the availability of land is is um conditioned by settler colonialism. So you don't have the availability of land, the, just the abil- ability to be able to go out and just kind of disperse toxins across the land without, without w- and often without a lot of regulation. Um, you don't have that ability without this kind of fundamental understanding that the land is infinitely available um, to be used and, and also to be polluted. And then, of course, um, I think, again, if we look back at the relationships to environmental justice and we look at those maps, um, we can see very clearly that um, that the kinds of uh, consequences of whose bodies are being um, most um, put on the line in relationship to the emergence of these kinds of products very clearly falls along class and race lines. Um, And that's something that I explore more fully through concepts like synthetic universality. So um, so I argue that uh, that plastic is really built um, to be universal, to be a product and to be a, a set of molecular conditions that is divorced from its environment um, and and that it moves out. And part of the kind of violence of plastic is that it moves out into the world with this kind of understanding of itself as a kind of universal um, object that has no has no um, relationship to a particular place, right? Like, I mean, if we think of something like artisanal plastic, right, that's just, it's kind of a ridiculous concept. Um, and so there's a way in which, um, there's a way in which the kind of logics of extraction are heightened and exacerbated through the production of plastics and then help to reveal uh, many of the kind of conditions of contemporary global capitalism. Um, through the kind of alienation of materials and labor, but also in relationship to thinking about how much of that, at least within the context um, that I'm working within and from, um, are really subtended upon the dispossession of of land from Indigenous peoples um, and the availability of land, the presumed availability of land. Um, And one of the other things that I think is also really important to sort of thinking about pollution as colonialism um, is the ways in which the land itself um, was really understood through settler colonialism to be plastic. Um, so that plasticity as a kind of concept um, doesn't just only apply to our relationships to um, 
to molecular structures or to the ability to to um, engineer uh, matter at a molecular level, but rather also applies to uh, the fund the kind of orientation of settler colonialism to land. So when you when you see settlers um, arrive on Turtle Island, one of the first thing that hap- happens is terraforming, right? And um, and you see this in all kinds of different ways. You see it from the fact of of the the genocide of indigenous peoples and you see it from the ways in which dams um, and other extraction projects almost immediately start to happen. Um, You also see it in the ways in which people had a very specific understanding of what fertile land should look like and what it should do. Um, And therefore there was this total imposition of a completely sort of untenable ecological conditions, which is the reason why, you know, you end up with things like the Great Dust Bowl in the 1930s or, um, you know, many of the uh, water um, problems that we're seeing today. All of these uh, uh, emerge because of the fact that there is there is a forced plasticity of the land here um, and and there's an imposition of a kind of European understanding of what the land should do onto ecological conditions that make absolutely no sense in this particular context so you see you see the ways in which pollution um, is colonialism in this kind of multivalent um, way so both the availability of land the kind of terraforming of land um, but then also in the accumulation of um, toxins and toxicity uh, within certain populations where other populations um, get to believe that we can somehow be saved. Um, Although I think that that it's very clear that this is not actually the case, but but we get to live within a kind of myth of the involubility of our bodies. Um, And and I think that one of the things that's so exciting about... um, a lot of the work in this area at the moment is is the ways in which people are really breaking these things down in all kinds of different ways. I'd like to shift tracks now and maybe get to something else that you talk to uh, talk about in the book, which is the the queer agency of plastic. Can you speak to the queer agency of plastic? Sure. So, um, one of the things that that sort of becomes really apparent when you start looking into plastic is is its weirdness right so um when i talk about queerness in the book i really am linking it to lgbtq movements um and to people um and to really thinking with um and through that that um theoretical and embodied lens um but there is also a valence of um queer agency in relationship to plastic that um, takes up the more kind of expansive terminologies of queer that that folks like Karen Barad have developed in relationship to thinking about um, matters, agential queerness and the kind of just total kind of bizarre relations of of the universe. So there's definitely something um, queer about plastics to begin with in the sense that plastics... um, you know, and you can see even in even in the way that I, that I talk about it, it's like you know, you swim. I kind of it's hard to slip. It's hard to stick to either a singular or plural understanding of of plastic because we think of it as a singular category. But as I was saying before, um, plastics is, are actually um, a really wide range of materials. So there's thousands and thousands of different um, plastics that we currently use. Um, so the one to seven categories on the on your recycling. Um, containers is a complete fiction 
And in addition to that, there's, you know, up to 80,000 additional um, chemicals that will be added to, to any particular product. So there's this huge range of of materiality um, to plastics. And then, of course, the way the, the ways that they behave um, is is to a large extent really unknown at this point. Um, they, I mean, keeping in mind that the first plastics were only created at the beginning of the 20th century. So we've only been living with them for, you know, about 120 years. Um, and and there's all kinds of things that that people didn't predict about what they were going to do. I mean, first of all, I think that no one was really thinking about the longevity of plastics when they were first being created. Um, there also is all kinds of evidence that even though people had a pretty uh, clear knowledge of the potential toxicities and harms of plastic, um, the companies buried that in order to um, put these products out into the world. Um, so there's all of, all of that that goes into the kind of creation and proliferation of plastics. But then, um, but then there's also just kind of like these very strange events. Um, and one of the things that really captured my attention um, when I first started working on this project um, was the plastosphere. So this was an article um, written by uh, Zettler and Zettler, and they documented the ways in which um, tiny pieces of plastic in the ocean were becoming microbial reefs for uh, different forms of bacteria um, and other micro um, uh, microorganisms. Um, so plastic became this kind of strange novel ecosystem that we had never seen before. Um, and there was all kinds of speculation about whether or not um, the microorganisms were using the plastics um, just merely as a kind of a home, or whether they were using them um, also as a food source. And um, since then, there's been a lot more research done, and there's all kinds of novel organisms that have developed um, to use plastic as a food source, which of course is um, not that surprising when you think about it, because it's an incredibly rich food source, right? Like oil is um, such an intense and energy intensive um, medium, and of course, biological organisms are going to figure out how to do that, and and so that is sort of what we're seeing. So that was one one of the ways in which. Um, I started thinking about the kind of queer agency of plastics was was to think about the kind of like um, strange proliferations and the kind of unruliness of it as a material. So, you know, one of the other things that was really guiding my thinking at the beginning of the project um, that's maybe not as present in the book is the ways in which plastics were um, really... Uh, contained within this they, they were really defined through this logic of containment right that like one of the things that plastics is really about is about the kind of this desire for a container right it's the desire to be able to separate ourselves from the earth it's the desire to be able to preserve um to um to kind of put at bay the processes of decay and of decomposition um, to really contain ourselves within a particular kind of unit. Um, and, and within that, um, so within that, that's sort of the desire of plastics, but instead, or our desire for plastics rather, um, but instead what we see is plastics penetrating all of everything we, we, we've sort of turned our attention to. So at this point, um, you know, plastics are in our bloodstreams, they're in, they're in our uh, cells and in our body, microplastics are in, in the cellular um, tissues of our body. 
Um, so they're able to penetrate down to, to some of the smallest um, elements of bodily existence. And so instead of it being contained, it's done the exact opposite, right? <laughs> like that the, 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 the plastics um, have within them this kind of desire for a kind of containment, but instead within that desire, within the kind of belief in the possibility of containment, what we did instead was create this material that then proliferated virtually every environment that we can possibly think of um, and every bodily um, aspect that that we could um, that we could see. And so I think that there's something really perverse in that kind of relationship, right? Um, also, I think just sort of like on a on a totally um, kind of metaphorical level, uh, the ways in which we think about plastics as kind of as sort of cheap or flashy or um, toxic, you know, all of these things are are also things that that get launched at queer people. So a lot of the metaphorical associations um, between plastics um, are also launched at the queer community. So the kind of like campiness or the the flashiness or the 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 kind of to- toxicity of of plastics. There's there are all kinds of relations there that that um, that were worth teasing out. And why are queer values helpful for us to think about ecology? So that's, um, this is a term that I get from Nicole Seymour. um, And she writes that queer values caring not just about the individual, the family or one's descendants, but other about the other species and persons to whom one has no immediate relations may be the most effective ecological values. And I found this like profoundly, um, important in the ways in which I was thinking through um, how we might rethink our relations to plastic and to all of these kinds of microorganisms that are developing in the wake of plastics proliferation. So, um, you know, I think as I think that um, queer values, I think, have have a sort of twofold use in this context. Um, One being what Seymour says, which is that um, there's for for many queer people, um, you know, our families of origin are not necessarily the place where we find the most um, comfort, or not even necessarily the place where where um, we even are connected anymore. And so, as we grow up, and so, um, and so, it's incumbent upon most most queer people to develop um, chosen family of some kind. And. And I think that what is interesting is within the kind of field of queer ecology or within the kind of um, emerging kind of cross, uh, cross-referenced um, or intersectional approach of thinking about environmental movements with um, LGBTQ movements um, is that there is a kind of understanding um, that if we are going to be expanding our families and our understanding of family to be beyond any kind of um, normative framework of um, of who gets to count um, as your sister or your mother or your father um, or you know that those biological ties have already be, been um, uh, you know abandoned for whatever reasons and and have um, and have been reconfigured along the lines of of thinking about what are the kinds of affinities and affiliations that you want to have why not expand that outwards to 
um, to non-human species as well, right? Why not include non-human species within that kind of set of, of relations? Um, and I think that that is precisely what Seymour is getting at, is that um, if we think about um, care and care networks and familial familial networks um, beyond the the kind of confines of biological relations and instead to be a more political uh, concept that is about it is about um, questions of care and affiliation um, then we can also expand that out into the into the non-human world um, and I would also say that the other thing that I think is really important about thinking with um, LGBTQ communities in relationship to um, kind of queer values and and thinking uh, thinking around the kind of question of plastics is that um, I think that there's an, a, a deep understanding that the state um, and state mechanisms, despite the fact that you know policy is incredibly important, and I really always kind of advocate for people to try to change policies because it has such a wide-reaching effect. Um, that there is still an understanding that the state is not going to save us, right? Um, and so that there's there's a fundamental orientation to the world that um, that we are going to have to save ourselves, and um, and that we cannot rely upon government structures in order to do so because it's clear. <laughs> from you know uh you know i now i now live in the united states and it's like very obvious that um that the state has absolutely no interest in seeing queer people thrive um especially trans folks um in fact it's the exact opposite right they're doing everything they possibly can to um undermine trans lives so um so you can see how within this kind of framework, it allows you to, to begin to make different kinds of affiliations that I think are politically useful um, in our, in our um, present moment and in trying to deal with um, the effects of plastic pollution. And here you, you also write about uh, the symbolic logic of the child in politics. Could you maybe explain for listeners what the symbolic logic of the child is and what that means for how we think about plastic? Yeah, so this is um, something that comes from Lee Edelman, but also gets taken up, I think, in really important ways by um, a theorist called Rebecca Sheldon, who wrote this incredible book called The Child to Come. Um, And in that book, she really maps out the ways in which um, the child often becomes the figure of the future, right? So we see this all the time, right? Like, constantly, especially in environmental discourses, you know, you think about like, Oh, you know, who are we saving the planet for? Oh, we're saving the planet for the for the children, right? And there's always there, there's almost always a picture of some idyllic looking child, um, you know, who's who is uh, who's then going to be the kind of um, inheritor of this of this of this earth, and that is who we're saving the earth for. And I think that that she points out that there's a number of things sort of like that um, that are problematic about the, the ways in which we we think about this. Um, one is that um, along with Edelman, she points to the ways in which that that the child is not just about actual children who will be born, who will then grow up and turn into adults, and who will actually have to deal with the real condition, real material conditions of whatever um, whatever environments they are then encountering, which um, you know do look pretty scary at this moment in time um, but uh, but rather is is often about um, the 
passing on the world as we know it now, right? So saving the future, saving the earth for our children or saving the kind of like, you know, say like to, to kind of think about our relationships to the kind of symbolic um, investments in, in the child is not so much about actually creating a livable world for the greatest number of actual children who will actually be born, um, but really is about um, reproducing the logics of petrocapitalism in order for them to be extended, right? And we can see this in the ways in which people really want their children to have a better future, right? And of course, of course, everybody wants their children to not suffer. And um, of course, they want um, happiness and, you know, all of these things. But the ways in which the kind of logics of the, that not suffering or the, the logics of, of happiness or the logic of, logics of betterment um, have been kind of constructed within the the state of of petrocapitalism, which is obviously deeply informed by the logics of white supremacy and settler colonialism, is really about the ways that um, that we are invested in. Um, you know, consumption, the ways that we are invested in home ownership, the ways that we are invested um, in the kind of um, heteronormative reproductive family unit, you know, all of these things, the ways that that white supremacy itself is a kind of shoring up of privilege and then passing it down, right, to accumulate at every stage, right? And and you can see how these things operate um, in the world in general. And and so, you know, when people are saying they want to save the earth for their children, they're often not saying, oh, we want to save the earth for our children by way of radically reconfiguring our relationships to property, to, um, to other humans, to, um, to the non-human world, to, you know, rethinking our relations to materiality. Instead, what they're often saying is like, we want our children to have like a nice house with like a nice lawn and, you know, like, and all of the kind of accoutrements of, of, uh, of what it means to have a kind of good existence within the logics of petrocapitalism, which are really only enabled through the kind of fundamental um, reliance upon fossil fuels that, that we have seen within the, within the past couple hundred years. So this is the reason why she's so deeply skeptical of, of, the, of the logic, the symbolic logic of the child, right? Because it's not about creating livable conditions. It's about shoring up um, privilege and power uh, along the same lines that we've seen for, for many generations now. Well, could you could you maybe connect this now to your idea of petro time? So yeah, so petro time encompasses a couple of different things. One is that um, one is that when you look to plastics, one of the one of the things that becomes so readily apparent is that plastics poses all these problems of temporality. Right. So in in one way, plastic is the kind of literal compressed time of thousands and thousands of years of of evolution. Right. Because it comes from uh, the bodies of mostly plants and algae and, you know, things like this, but also uh, other smaller, um, smaller organisms um, that then it becomes compressed into oil or other, other um, fossil fuels that then, of course, get, you know, gets transformed through these chemical processes into, into various kinds of plastics, um, which, you know, if they're packaging at, for us as consumers, we often interact with only very briefly 
before it then gets put back out into the world as a, as an end product where it has um, a very um, unknown but most likely quite far-reaching existence. Um, so we're never really quite sure how long plastics are going to survive on their own kind of in the wild for um, or in landfills. Um, but uh, there's a lot of evidence that 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 those plastics could be there for, for hundreds um, of years into the future and potentially thousands, depending upon um, the conditions the, where, where they end up. And so clearly you, you kind of immediately run into this like incredible problem of temporality where the kind of cheapest materials that we deal with, which are these sets kind of sets of plastics um, have been defined have these incredibly long, long reaching existences, right? Um, so there's this very odd um, kind of undermining of, of any kind of um, relationship of deep time uh, that would be thought of in terms of like opening up um, to the kind of indebtedness that we have to other organisms and, and to our ancestors. Um, and instead, there's a real undermining or cutting out, out of that by way of making this incredibly, uh, this incredibly um, uh, long-lived material. Um, and by that, I mean both sort of in, in its in its initiation phase as an, as oil and then also in, in what it's going to become um, that uh, that there's a, that that we deal with it in such a quick manner right that it's like that it's meant as a is completely disposable um, item so so that's part of what is I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about um, petro time but I'm also thinking about the ways in which um, plastics have these kinds of relations um, where the effects of plastic pollution um, can often have these real lags to them. So for example, Michelle Murphy talks about um, latency in relationship to plastics and plastic pollution, where um, whereas they note that um, you can be exposed to a particular um, plastic toxin, um, mainly through its production phase. Um, and that uh, the effect of that exposure might not appear for two generations later. So there's, there's this incredible kind of time lag, and that creates all kinds of problems, both in terms of um, attributing harm, right? It's We don't have mechanisms within our legal structure to be able to attribute harm for things that happened two generations before. Um, we also don't have the kind of and often that that gets to be incre- incredibly difficult because, you know, the company that um, that originally polluted often has ceased to exist two generations later, right? They got merged or bought out by some other company, um, you know, and then, you know, as you see in, in as we've seen in relationship to things like the Bhopal d- disaster and Union Carbide, you know, one of their ways of evading any kind of responsibility was to sell off, sell off that part of the, that, like to sell the, that company got merged. So I think that one of the, it creates all kinds of um, problems for really addressing these things but also it creates these very strange time relationships to time 
So, um, so instead of kind of like operating within a kind of per, a progressive linear time, time frame, um, what plastics are really kind of forcing us to think about is the kind of multiple colliding temporalities that are emerging kind of simultaneously, where we're kind of at the one, on the one hand, dealing with the kind of incredibly, um, uh, the ways in which our present moment is constituted in such a manner that we are only ever being asked to look at the present, not as like a way to really sit with the complexity of it, but as this kind of presentism that is constantly passing us, right? So the ways in which like, you know, when you go to the consumer shelves, there's always in a kind of an abundance of things, although perhaps maybe not as much anymore, but, but before the pandemic, this was what, this was what we were kind of like accustomed to in the West, right? Um, and so there's a way in which there's like this kind of endlessly reproducing present, right? The, where we don't have to kind of like take account for the passages of time. We also don't have to take it into account the kind of deep time natures of things. Um, and so there, so, but, but when we really look at plastics, we're sort of caught in that presentism at the same time as we're being asked to like, think about the deep time nature of oil at the same time as we're being able to sort of think about what is going to happen multiple generations from now that maybe has not yet even appeared as a kind of harm that might yet appear. Um, and so I think that like thinking about those kinds of multiple um, crashing and, and asynchronous temporalities um, is useful when we're thinking about um, plastics um, to be able to fully account for, for what they're doing in the world. Linking up to this idea of time, I think it's it's very easy to fall into sort of an apocalyptic feeling thinking about plastic in this way. And on page 97, you had this line that jumped out at me, which is apocalypse and its associated narratives are a way to avoid responsibility. Why? Um, so as far as I understand, and I grew up with scientists, so so forgive forgive me for all those folks who actually have a, a kind of um, Judeo-Christian or um, uh, Abrahamic background that have maybe a, a deeper understanding of um, of apocalypse than I do. Um, but, um, but from what I understand, um, apocalypse carries with it the sense of both revelation and then also um, absolution. And so, and that happens, obviously, by the total ravaging of the world, right? So um, the ways in which it kind of provides a kind of clean slate for the world. Um, but also that um, through the kind of elimination of everything, right? So I think in our in our contemporary imagination, um, I think that often, you know, especially in Hollywood movies, for example, um, we're kind of presented with these worlds that are like completely and utterly uninhabitable. Um, and then there's like one or two people who are surviving and then, you know, they reproduce the social order in this kind of like symbolic logic that that Rebecca Sheldon was talking about in relationship to the child, right? So that the, the continuation of the social order um, continues unabated and unchanged. Um, and, uh, and we just kind of reproduce all the all the problems of the past. But but within the logics of apocalypticism, um, <laughs> I'm not sure I said that right, but <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying, um, which is that um, which is that I think that there's like a sense that the world is really going to end, right? That there's an actual end that is going to occur, and one of the things that I find kind of startling sometimes when I'm when I'm teaching um, is 
that I've encountered students who've said this. They said the world is going to end in 10 years, um, you know, following the IPCC reports. Um, and I'm always curious about like, well, what does that mean, right? The world is going to end in 10 years. Like, like, is it like the sun is going to envelop the entire earth and then that's it, right? Like, like, what does that, what is the kind of logic of that? Um, but, but I think that we do get caught up in these kinds of narratives of, of the end. And the problem with the end is that there's no sense of like what comes after or having to rebuild. Right. And, and I mean, if we look at things um, through a more scientific lens in terms of like um, prediction models, et cetera, et cetera, what we're going to be dealing with is not some catastrophic, catastrophic event that is going to happen that will then provide the mechanism for either revelation or any kind of mechanism of salvation or any kind of me- mechanism of absolution, right? None of that is going to happen. Instead, what is most likely going to happen is things will get incrementally worse for many people. Um, and that the kind of, um, the kind of, you know, and that may happen through, various kinds of horrific events um but it might just happen in a much more incremental way and the problem of the kind of apocalyptic logic or the logics of accelerationism for example is that i think that it really um is coming from this place of believing that one first of all can be dislocated from the other people that you're surrounded with um, and the other beings that you're surrounded with in the first place that like that somehow others deaths are not going to affect you Um, but also that that you're not there is nothing incumbent upon you to try to do something about making others lives as livable as possible while we're here Um, and I think that there's a certain kind of nihilism that can happen within environmental movements that's just like well fuck it it's all gonna it's all gonna you know uh it's it's gonna be terrible in 10 years anyway so so why bother and you know even though I can understand that where that kind of sentiment comes from, um, I think that it's a completely untenable um, sentiment in terms of a kind of ethics, because um, especially in the ways in which we see all of these kinds of processes playing out, everything to do with oil and its manifestations, whether that be through climate change or whether that be through um, plastics, is that it is um, most affecting the people who are least um, least responsible. And, um, you know, as Kyle Powis White would argue, this is not an incidental um, condition, right? It's not like, oh, wow, that's really unfortunate that this turned out this way. It was a mechanism of power, right? And so if we care about things like settler colonialism, that it's incumbent upon us to do everything in our power to be able to uh, undo these colonial relations, which in part that that undoing is also an undoing of the logics of absolution and salvation um, and a kind of catastrophic event that is that is going to that is going to in sense release us from any sense of responsibility or obligation um, to others. And this also leads really wonderfully into another one of your concepts, which is queer toxicity. Can you explain what you mean by queer toxicity? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the other things that, um, that I could have mentioned before, um, is that one of the things that happens in relationship to, um, 
to plastics is that it's long been known since the 1930s, in fact, that um, many of the additives that are, um, that are put into plastic products have the effect of queering the body. So, um, and so, and this has been taken up by a lot of uh, many, many um, feminists and queer theorists um, in relationship to kind of like addressing the kind of um, masculine panic that has arisen around this. So, um, you know, Eva Hayward, for example, has, has written about the ways in which there was literally a campaign in Sweden to save the man. Because um, because one of the ways in which these types of these types of um, endocrine disrupting chemicals emerge in the world, and one of the things that that sort of they they manifest as um, is through a, what is called a feminization of of, of male fetuses, um, and also through um, lowering sperm counts, through um, you know different types of of bodily changes that we are seeing um, in the world. And so this is so we're dealing with these actual kind of material effects of all of these pollutants. Um, and and of course, there's a kind of moral panic that arises in relationship to that, where there's a kind of reassertion of a kind of of a masculinity that is then under threat um, of male bodies that are then under threat and a kind of wanting to, again, reassert the kind of value and the prominence of a kind of white white supremacist patriarchal system where where those bodies are at the top. Um, and what what one of the, the other people that I've been really inspired by is Mel Chen's work. And in their work, they really, they talk a lot about the kind of possibilities of toxicity. So, um, so the openings of toxicity, um, and they're, they're not, um, they're not doing this in a naive way where they, they somehow believe that um, toxicity is like the way to liberation or something. This is clearly, it clearly is not, right? <laughs> toxicity is incredibly harmful. Um, one of the primary effects of, of endocrine disrupting chemicals is cancers, right? Like, so even though it does cause these kind of bodily mutations, it also causes very real um, um, health problems for for many people and, and premature deaths. So this is not in any way to kind of diminish the the the, um, the importance of looking at those kinds of very real um, uh, health effects on, or in bodily capacity, the effects of bodily capacities, um, but rather to um, acknowledge also the fact that toxicity comes with its own set of of potentially kind of like interesting um, affects, right? So thinking about the ways in which um, we actually intoxicate ourselves on purpose lots of times, right? Because it opens up um, different ways of knowing and different ways of being in the world. Um, and to also sort of ask after what else does toxicity do? And one of the things that I think that um, is very clear through their work and also through just sort of like looking at plastics more generally is that these logics of containment are completely undone by toxicity. So the kind of this belief in the um, in the individual, the belief in the kind of sanctity of an individual body, um, you know, these are fictions, right? They, 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 that's not how our bodies actually function. Our bodies are porous; they're open to the world. They, um, you know, whatever is out in the world will be in our bodies. And and I think that sometimes, you know, you can see this when when you know when there first started being all these reports about how plastics are, you know, we're ingesting, you know, credit cards worth of plastic every week, or um, you know, plastics are now found in um, 
placentas or, you know, other kinds of places where people really didn't want plastics to be. Um, I mean, you can understand why people didn't want plastics to be there, but, but there was, there is a kind of sense that, that, um, the only reason why you would be shocked or surprised by that is if you did believe that somehow your body was separate from the world. And I think that what toxicity allows us to see in a very clear way, and maybe it's, um, you know, it's too bad we didn't learn that lesson in a different way. But, um, but for kind of Western modernity, it allows us to see the ways in which we are thoroughly and utterly enmeshed in the world. So queer toxicity is a way of... of um, also maybe embracing the ways in which those those forms are potentially really useful. So, you know, another person, um, Bruce um, Bajmil, has looked at all of the kind of queer animals that, that exist, and there's over 450 documented queer animals in the world. Um, and a lot of those animals are incredibly successful in terms of survival. And so maybe there's ways in which the kind of adaptations of the body the permutations of the body, the uh, feminization of, of male fetuses, maybe these are survival strategies, right? Maybe there are ways in which, in which um, we might actually be able to proliferate um, in more interesting and creative ways into the future. This book, it feels like it touches on everything, despite being so short. You, you talk about plastic glomerate and you talk about toxicity, of course, plays a huge role in this. You talk about Cancer Alley in Louisiana. You talk about the anti-blackness of plastic pollution. And despite touching on so many horrific things, reading the book doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like horror to think through and with plastic. I, I read this book twice. I could easily read it a third time in the next week. It's super exciting. Before I let you go, there is one tradition on the New Books Network I always like to uphold, which is to ask what you're working on now. Yeah. Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for saying that. It's really, um, really so gratifying to hear that. Um, it is something I cared really deeply about um, in terms of, you know, maybe avoiding some of those apocalyptic logics, right? It's like, how do we, how do we train ourselves to be able to sit with these things so that we can see what is interesting in them um, while also recognizing the harms that are happening? Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful to hear that that, that came across. Um, but the next project actually picks up on the Petro Time, um, but, but uh, it actually will be a book about Petro Time. So taking that short section and, and expanding it um, much in a much um, more rigorous way, but really thinking through the ways in which um, the kind of conceptualizations of Western modernity, the temporality of, of Western modernity comes about in and through fossil fuels. So when we think about, for example, the standardization of time that happens um, in terms of time zones, that that comes about and happens um, only in the, the very late 19th century um, or up until the 19th century, there was, you know, for example, over 250 different time zones in the United States. Um, and, you know, when, and that was fine when, um, when nobody had to catch a train, but when you had to all of a sudden catch a train, <laughs> this became incredibly problematic. Um, and so the kind of ways in which the fossil fuels have shaped our understandings of time um, 
really kind of set out a kind of regulated um, time time frames for us, right? You can also think about this in terms of electric lighting. Um, so the ways in which um, through the kind of proliferation of first uh, whale fuel um, and then after that fossil fuels um, really reorganized our sense of, of what is possible in terms of product, production, um, in terms of working, in terms of um, thinking about our relations to, to time and to, to everyday temporality. So I want to map the ways in which um, temporality and especially a kind of Western modernity um, that's embedded in questions of progress um, and linearity comes about through um, fossil fuels is sort of subtended by by the exploration of fossil fuels. Um, and then the other two parts of the book are about um, how do we sort of think about the relationships to the future in this time where um, where there's so much investment, both in kind of um, deep futures as in science fiction, um, but also a kind of sense of no future, um, the kind of sense of the foreclosure of the future. Um, and there I'm thinking about things like the, the climate change clock in, um, in Union Square in New York, where it's like literally counting down that IPCC clock that's like counting down um, till we um, till we till we run out of time to avoid uh, 1.5 degrees um, Celsius warming by 2100, and then um, and then the third. So how do we think about how do we rethink um, uh, something like progressive politics, for example, when um, our notions of progressive politics have been built upon this sense of it's going to get better, right? So despite the fact that we might want to think in more complicated linear ways within a kind of standard framework of, again, of coming out of a kind of Western tradition, um, we often think about, you know, like that's why I think when when something happens, we're like, oh, what is this, the, the 19th century? Like, you know, this shouldn't be happening anymore, right? Like we have a sense that, that progressive politics is supposed to proceed in a kind of linear fashion. And of course, it doesn't, right? Um, but we have this kind of investment, this effective investment in that in that kind of movement. Um, so how do we rethink um, politics away from that kind of understanding of things? Um, and then in the third section of the book, I'm interested in more the kind of phenomenological experience of living in climate change. Like, what does it mean? How do we think about temporality when seasons are totally random at this point, right? For those of us who live in in places where there is meant to be kind of clear cut seasons, um, you know, they they just are not what they used to be, right? Like even in my lifetime, um, and you know, I might be middle aged, but I'm not that old yet. So, so, so you know, there's like a very um, you know, I'm really interested in maybe more fully explored, exploring these kind of colliding timeframes and the ways in which um, fossil fuels both like builds up a sense of, of linearity and progressive um, temporality. And now it's, it's all of those things are complete, becoming completely undone. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. <laughs> Thanks. I had to write it first. Yeah, right. <laughs> The book is Plastic Matter, published in 2022 with Duke University Press. Professor Heather Davis, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.